Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast where each week I'll interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Andrew Ridker. He has a new novel out called Hope, and you may recognize his name as he is the best-selling author of The Altruist, which was his first novel, and it took over the literary world. I adored this conversation so, so much. We talk about jokes, but in a way that is a little different than ways that I've talked about comedy in the past. We get into the construction of jokes and how he likes to write comedy into stories that aren't necessarily funny and the way that that makes these stories just that much more human, how it brings a brevity and a a realness to his stories because no matter how serious something is or how challenging a family situation might be, humor is always going to be a part of a realistic family experience. There's just never going to be a set of relationships intertwined in a family where there's only one emotion and that one emotion is the heaviness. I really, really love this conversation. We talk about our shared Jewish backgrounds throughout our family and just a bunch of various comedic performances that we both really adored. And in line with that, I want to give you a book recommendation, which is I highly recommend you not only read, but listen to the autobiography all about me, my remarkable life in show business by Mel Brooks. We talk a little bit about Mel Brooks here and how he's inspired both of us. Uh, But if you haven't had a chance to check out Mel Brooks's autobiography that came back, that came out back in 2021, it's so great. And again, the the audio book of the autobiography is, of course, read by Mel Brooks. And it is just as delightful as you could possibly hope it would be. So I highly recommend that. And I highly recommend you go get Andrew's new book, Hope. You're going to adore that novel. And if you want to get a hold of me, of course, you can always find me at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. Or you can find me on Instagram or TikTok at passionsandprologues. Not going to keep you any longer. I am just so excited to get to this conversation with Andrew. I think you're deeply going to love it. (laughs) Deeply going to love it. So I hope you check out and enjoy this discussion with Andrew Ridker, author of Hope. Um, passions and prologues. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. 
I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Okay, Andrew, what is something that you are super passionate that we're going to be or super passionate about that we're going to be discussing today? I am super passionate about jokes, which is funny because I don't actually even have a great store, mental store of jokes, you know, like knock, mm-hmm. knock jokes or one liners or what have you. But the idea of the joke and and here I'm going to get in trouble because there's nothing less funny than dissecting humor. No, but I, I love I love explaining a joke. So please get into it. Just I remember I was a senior in high school and we had this project and it was something about oh it was it was sort of called like your senior paper or something. Mm-hmm. Right. Maybe even a 10 page paper, which to a high school kid, I mean it was like this daunting, you know, that's that's like a hundred page thesis to a 17 year old. So I was I knew I had but you could but the topic was free. You could really kind of go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was really into Arrested Development at the time, the TV show. And, but I also had to give it a sort of academic underpinning, obviously, to make it this school paper. And I wound up writing about Arrested Development in relation to Freud's theory of humor, Bergson's theory of humor. And it's been a while since I've read those, but they left a big impression on me. I actually just read Art Spiegelman has a new book out that's like kind of a new old book called Breakdowns. It's a collection of some of his early comics before he wrote Mouse in book form. Mm-hmm. And he has a great, great panel or two about, it's like this Art Spiegelman jester character explaining humor. I'm just so fascinated by it because, A, because it is impossible to make funny. And there's something really, and I think profound about the fact that talking about comedy isn't funny, but comedy itself is. And also jokes to me, they're so much like, they're like poetry. It's it's a it's about compression. It's about di- disarming the reader. It's about, you know, Victor Schlafsky's theory of est- estrangement works perfectly well for a joke. It makes you see something familiar in a new way. And the idea of working humor into art that is not explicitly just comedy is a big obsession with mine. Like, short of being a stand-up comedian... How funny can I make my books without losing sight of like what literature is yeah. really for, which is beyond just making us laugh, obviously. No, I I love I love this for a, a variety of reasons. One, something that we didn't talk about before we started recording. I I have a similar passion for jokes and like the structure of comedy. And part of this, I have a a small uh, kind of shared background that I that you have as well. My father's side of our family is Jewish, and I like we have a deeply rooted like there is a deeply rooted aspect of comedy that comes with like Jewish, both like celebrating various, you know, like Passover and different things, but also just like the, you know, I, Mel Brooks has talked a lot about it in his various and books and movies and everything. But like, I, I love this concept of you, you're saying talking about comedy might not be funny, but I think it's extremely interesting. And the, um, you know, Jerry Seinfeld's like 
comedians in cars getting coffee is like this very concept. It's right. Yes, they tell jokes interspersed, but I think the reason that show is so interesting is because these conversations are with these extremely high level comedians. And it's not about like, it's not about making each other laugh, although they do. It's more about seeking the interesting aspects of comedy for them, like why they structure a joke a certain way or why they choose to approach a punchline in these. And so to me, I find myself watching stand-up specials and even if I don't laugh once for 45 minutes, I'll find myself really enjoying it because I'll be like, the way that they told that story was deeply, deeply mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, there's something about comedy that it's funny to think about how kind of hot, what a hot button topic it is right now and how politicized it's become because you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, uh, how many more articles do we need to read about, you know, Dave Chappelle's latest stand-up, whether pro or con, but at the same time, it's so important to, to our culture that we really are, like, in some ways having an important debate over the, this battleground of, like, what is acceptable to laugh at? What's the direction of the, the punch going? Mm-hmm. How does that affect the, the comedy? Like, I think people get really riled up about these debates over especially stand-up comedy because it means so much to people and we, we need it, but we can't, you know, the, our, our deciding what is permissible or acceptable in comedy is like, uh, it's a microcosm for discussing like what's permissible and acceptable mm-hmm. in society, you know, in terms of behavior in general and what our attitudes should or shouldn't be. And I'll just say as an aside, I, I also, I mean, I'm obsessed with Mel Brooks, mm-hmm. like deeply, deeply obsessed. But I also grew up listening to a lot of George Carlin mm-hmm. stand-up on CD. And especially in his very late grumpy old man phase. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know, this 13-year-old kid, like shaking my fist at the state of the world, you know, with George Carlin, who's probably like in his 70s at that point. <laughs> yeah. One HBO special a year. But what I find interesting is like, we could talk about this later too, but the relationship between comedy and transgression, Mm -hmm. because George Carlin's stuff to me was so exciting at that time because it felt like he was saying what you weren't supposed to say and it was dangerous and it was, you know, but he was also, and he wasn't coming at it from a politically left perspective per se, but he was Mm -hmm. coming at it from a, like I'm calling out hypocrisy where I see it. Now though, you get into these insane debates, or that I feel they're insane, where it's like people on the right are saying you sh- like people on the left are saying you're not allowed to joke about this or that, and it's censorship a, a little bit. But then on the other hand, it, there's such an industry in like quote unquote transgressing. Right? It's like you know, oh, are you going to cancel me for saying blah blah blah? And it's like no, you just got a bazillion dollar Netflix deal. <laughs> so what does it mean for a society when transgression? which is so integral to comedy when you're transgressing against a basically center left social order transgression for its own sake, isn't going to cut it. And I think we it's these times have sort of forced us to rethink the value of transgression in comedy and like, who is the target? Cause it's not the 1950s and we're all shaking our fists at like the conventional nuclear family. You know, it's like yeah. things are more complicated now. And it's, it's really interesting that uh, I think a lot about, the comedians that I'm drawn most to are the ones who will talk about topics that in theory, like you say, like there's, 
I feel like there's like this one level, like you said, where the you know left-leaning people will say like, well, we really shouldn't talk about these things. And right pe- right-leaning people will say like, well, I'm going to talk about this because look how hardcore I am. But they really, but they make the same tired, stupid jokes. And then there's, <laughs> right, right. Who, then there's these people who they are also like very left-leaning, but they're the more, in my mind, the more established and like well-off comedians who know like the, Patton Oswalt, Kenny Jesselnik, even like Tom Segura, who just did a, a mm. comedy special just came out, who I liked some of it and not, but like they'll talk about topics that in theory, other people say you can't talk about them. And they'll say like, well, no, you, you can. It's just that you have to approach it and it, you, you know, have a, there's a, use always angles that you can talk about things where aren't, they're not offensive, but they still discuss the topic. Mark Maron does this all the time where he'll say like, you can talk about these various things. You just A, have to have an original thought and B, have to accept consequences that will come from whatever your thought is. And it's like, and that's that to me is something that has gone away. Like you said, not even just from comedy, but like society at large where I get so frustrated talking about politics. I'm not shy about the fact that like, I'm very, very less leaning my entire family. But to me, it's like, it's exhausting to even try to have a conversation about anything political because there's like no middle ground to even have a discussion. It's just like either I think you're the worst person in the world or you think I'm the worst person in the world. And so it's like when you can at least, the rare times where I'll meet someone who I actively disagree with, but they'll at least have a conversation with me. It's almost shocking now. And I feel like it's the same thing with comedy. It's like when a comedy special or a movie or something comes out that at least has something interesting to say, it then garners so much attention because so few people are willing to be interesting or at least have a, a thought because it can be easy just to say like, oh, X group of people, they're terrible and here's why. And then you're going to get a bunch of people that are, it's just like a dog whistle. They're just going to say like, oh yeah, thanks so much for saying that. We we think that too. Right, right. I mean, there are moments that I find really interesting where, you know, you'll be at a comedy show or at a movie or even a, a book reading and a certain kind of joke is told and the reaction, there's a certain reaction that I think I find very interesting, which is the sort of, are we supposed to laugh at that? Or are we supposed to find that funny? And there's almost this like moment of looking around, like what side is the comedian on our side or not our side? Like, Mm -hmm. are we laughing at this or are we not? Which to me is so funny because I think of, of comedy and laughter as such a direct, like such a disarming force where if it's funny, you laugh. And if it's not funny, you don't laugh. And obviously it's subjective, but it doesn't feel like something that I have a lot of control over, like what I funny. And you get these weird moments sometimes where you feel everyone sort of like clench up a little and go almost like they're looking to each other to go, is, is that funny? Uh Uh, Which to me sort of also like defeats the purpose of it. Cause I'm like, well, is it funny to you? Like you shouldn't look to the person to your left or right. Like it should get you or not get you. But I, to your point earlier too, about you have to have something interesting to say about such and such controversial or transgressive Mm -hmm. material. I've always thought it would be so much more effective if the left, instead of saying you're not allowed to talk about that, would just say that's hack. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because like it is, and I do think comedians that are trying to push boundaries in, in, in a way that they think is edgy, but really just reifies existing social orders, they will get all riled up if you say I'm censoring you. And then they'll release a, a shitty uh, 
stand-up album where the cover has a piece of caution tape over their mouth. Oh my God. And they're like, I'm too dangerous for a Netflix. Yeah. But if you just say, you know, it's it's hack to say that. That racial stereotype is hack. It's been around for 50 years. Like mm-hmm. with something new, that I think presents a bigger challenge. And I even have this in my, I mean, in my own writing, like I like the feeling, the dangerous feeling of getting near a topic. Mm-hmm. You know, there's certain topics in this book like, I mean, like Israel, Palestine takes up like a little bit of a chunk of this yeah. book, which, you know, for my, for the Jewish community, and that those are the people that in a lot of cases come out to my events or, or read mm-hmm. my books, you know, it feels a little like, I like the idea that it's dangerous and it's exciting for me. On the other hand, I don't want to write for claps, not laughs, you know, and I don't want to write for just, but I also don't want to write just to piss people off. So in that Israel selection, you get you get one character who's like very pro-Palestine, but in a sort of like obnoxious way. And you get another character that's sort of pro-Israel, but in like a really sort of nefarious way. And the main character is caught between because he's mainly just trying to hook up with this girl. And he's like, how can I avoid, you know, siding with one country mm-hmm. until I know which side this girl I'm attracted to takes, <laughs> you know? And to me, that's... It's like this topic is a little bit, you know, dangerous, you could say, but it's being approached from all of these different angles. And I am not saying, here's how you're supposed to feel about it. But I definitely can relate to that feeling of like, oh, it would be fun to like wade into these waters. You know, I get, I understand the appeal of that, but you're absolutely right. You have to say something new. Otherwise it's like, okay, that joke was like, if it's, ju- it's just racist, like yeah. what are we doing? Well, and exactly what you said about just say like, it would be more productive to just say like, we're not canceling you. Just what you're saying is dumb and not original. Yeah, it's boring. Exactly like that. Like I, and I think that that gets to something where one of the things that I, I love so much about Mel Brooks we were talking about before is like, he understood that comedy has power. And one of the things that he did, I think it was starting with the producers, but it might've been even earlier on is he basically was just like, he just started making fun of the Nazis. He was like, they're horrible and they're in their evil, but, Look at like I'm just going to make fun of them. I'm just going to berate them. I'm going to show anyone that wants to try to hold up those horrific beliefs. I'm just going to basically insult you to death so that you're embarrassed of your of your bad take of your bad belief system. And like, and I do think that is something that like I don't think people do enough of in today, where they like people don't say, you know, I'm not. We're, you're not being canceled. Also, like you said, you're you're coming on, you know, a Fox News, where there's however many millions of people watching you to say that you're being canceled. It's like, all right, calm down. You go on a Joe Rogan podcast to say no one's letting me speak my truth. But like, if you just, if more people would just come up to the to them and like in your interview, just be like, it, no one's silencing you. You're just an idiot. Like you're just wrong. I think like I don't know. To me, like like I said, I think comedy has such power and it has an ability to remove the fear from a lot of things, but also just to like, it enables you to inject honesty into conversations where maybe it would be challenging to do that otherwise. And like, to me, I'm curious for you, obviously having, you know, written a couple novels now and obviously been writing all your life. Like when was writing humor into what you wanted to produce? Had that always been something that you were interested in? Or I guess like, where did you start to get your own roots of injecting comedy into your stories? Yeah, it's kind of a case where 
it's almost, it feels to me almost like a first language and it would actually take more work in some ways to suppress than to mm. like actively insert. Although the, you know, the idea of like combing through uh, proofs of a novel and being like, you know, insert joke here is kind of crazy and funny to me. Though I have been doing some screenwriting with my sister in recent years, and that is sometimes what we do. Like we go, okay, there hasn't been a, a joke beat in a, you know, yeah. it runs. but for me, it's really like, it's just part of the language. And I actually remember, I think some early writing I did, I started out thinking I would do poetry and I loved poets that were funny. There's, I don't know if you know the poet James Tate, but like mm-hmm. he writes funny, absurd, profound poems. And I just was so thrilled at the, that they were just so funny. And, and, and it, but yet yeah, this is like also serious poetry, you know, that people are taking seriously. And I actually think when I, when I think about my like artistic education, it was all those years when I was trying to be very self-serious that I wrote the most cringy, embarrassing, unproductive stuff. Like I, I was one of these nerdy kids who went to like poetry camp, like yeah. summer poetry programs or whatever. And I remember like my poems from those, they were not funny. They were really serious. They were weirdly waspy. I remember my dad went to a reading and he was like, where are the Jews in your palms? It's just a bunch, like, why are you, where are these names coming from? And I was like, oh, I just thought those were like American names, you know? <laughs> and it was only when I started to really realize that a lot of my favorite authors, and I pivoted to, to fiction and realized so many of my favorite authors, from Philip Roth to Laurie Moore, were just like funny on the page. And that didn't hang up with their reputations that I, that I stopped being so self-serious. That sort of archetypal self-serious young writer guy is a top guy. And just started being like, well, if I, I, I like stuff that makes me laugh, I think I can make people laugh. And like everything just like kind of opened up because it's like, oh, it's just, I think every writer has this where you're kind of fighting against your natural voice for one reason or another. Maybe it's because you have some influence you're sort of overly wedded to, or maybe mm-hmm. it's you think writing is supposed to be a certain way. But for me, it was like accepting that I like writing things that are funny, accepting that I like writing about family stuff that tends to be a little like domestic. Once I let go that that was okay, things like took off in a very different way for me. Yeah. Well, and and to me, it makes sense, again, like having at least uh, like a tangential connection with like half, again, half my family is, is Jewish. My mom's side of our family is Catholic. But like we, I feel like inherently, if you're going to write about and even remotely modern family and your you know your book is set in 2013 your new book i to write about even the incre- like the incredibly stressful and horrific and challenging things that your family that the family goes through in in this book if you don't put any humor in there it's almost like it can be it can, it can be really challenging to approach like i i talk about a lot um the saddest movie I've ever seen is Blue Valentine. And I jokingly told someone, mm-hmm. like, it started horrifically sad and that was the, the high point of the movie. Right, right. And like, that's, I, I don't know, to me, the I appreciate and enjoy novels the most that yes, they tell an incredible story and they leave me when I'm done with it thinking about the story. But that doesn't mean you don't want to laugh along the way. Like you, you want to get some brevity in there, and then you mentioned with it right, from a a screenwriting standpoint, like you said, it, it it can be much more not formulaic, but hey, there hasn't been a joke in a while here. Here, that we haven't had one of those beats. 
So when you're writing, does it just feel more natural when you're writing about a family or writing a novel, kind of that longer form, just to, like you said, just sort of naturally interject humor here and there? Or is it something that you're mindfully considering as you're going? Yeah, I mean, one thing I tried to do in this book that was a little different from the last book, and this might be one of those things that like only I noticed, but I think the last book in some ways was narrated from a perch, let's say. And it was, it was, both books are close third person on multiple characters, but that first book was more, the narrative voice was hanging above the action, looking down at the characters and sort of observing them. And that's great. And there's a million great novels written that way, certainly. The Nabokov often, like, that's the way those novels go. He's like sitting above the chessboard, you know. Yeah. This book, I wanted more consciously to be writing from eye level, from the character's eye level. And that changes the way that humor functions in the book. So when you're writing from like 10 feet above the characters, there is a sense of literally looking down, which sort of can lead to a, a little bit of an attitude of looking down, not to say that I dislike or demean my characters, just that you're looking at the world from a little bit of that God's eye view. And mm-hmm. that's very different from, and, and so the narrator's like pointing things out about the situation and the characters, like the narrator's in this safe place, letting you know what's happening down here. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you write from the eye level, the humor needs to be a lot more situational because you, uh, there's not a, a, narr- a narrator coming in, poking fun at the character's foibles or exposing some hypocrisy you have to be in the driver's seat with the character, seeing the world through their eyes. And the comedy has to come from the situations they get themselves into. And so I think that changed the way the comedy worked, but it was also sort of liberating in a way because I I almost feel like there are maybe more jokes in the first book, but there's more situational humor in this book. And it was much easier to write in a sense because instead of thinking I need a joke here or what would be funny to write, you just let the characters get into crazy situations and resolve those the way you would any scene. And, the, and if there are, it's a funny situation, the humor will sort of result from that. But I'll say too, it's, so, it's always just, like, I agree completely that, you know, I have a hard time with like a Blue Valentine type piece of art where it's sort of like unrelenting. But even so, I just think of it so much like, if humor comes naturally, like do it. And if it doesn't, don't. And the thought, the idea of using, I do think it serves these purposes and serves these functions of like letting the reader take a breath, giving a, mm-hmm. giving a laugh to break up the tension. Like it does those things, but that's not, at least when I'm sitting down, that's not why I'm consciously. Yeah. It really is like the, just kind of the way it comes out. It, there's this, um, I think it's a quote about country music someone had where they say like, if it isn't sad, it isn't true, something something mm. like that. Mm. And I sort of feel like that I agree with that. And I also feel like if it isn't funny, at least a little bit, yeah. it isn't true, you know? Well, and to write about a family, families contain multitudes. Like no matter, you know, if you're even remotely like close with your family as you, as you become an adult, you know, I'm in my late 30s. I'm the youngest of four children. I talk to my siblings every single day, still at least like via text message, mm. like, every single day is wrought with there's some sadness in our conversations and there's some humor and it'd be insane if there wasn't because you have this such relationship with all these people. So I, we've been kind of talking around it for a while, but do you want to kind of give my listeners sort of an introduction to your new novel, Hope, and then we can kind of talk about that a little bit more. I, I kind of realize we've been sort of 
talking about the humor aspects of it, but they haven't really gotten to the plot. So do you want to kind of sure. lay out what the book itself is for everybody listening in? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Hope is about a family that sort of from all outside um, perspectives looks to have everything sort of figured out. They're well-educated, they have good jobs, they live in a nice suburb, they're sort of like good Democrat voters. They're very much the sort of picture-perfect Obama-era suburban liberal Jewish upper-middle-class family. Their values are the country's values at this particular time. But it's also the year 2013, and as the optimism that propelled Obama into office is starting to wane and the country is starting to creep under some of the pressures that you know, we're going to see the results of a couple years down the road. So too is the family. So the father who's led this morally impeccable life basically makes this one bad decision. He commits fraud at work and that sets off this chain reaction of scandals that affects every member of the family. And as you read the book, you basically watch this family implode over the course of a year and then try to put themselves back together again but those scandals really are just exposing fault lines that were always there. And it's almost like what happens when the perfect family is revealed not to be so perfect after all. And what does that also say about their values, which again, are this these sort of broader center-left American values. It's a little bit, I love reading fiction. You know, fiction is all about specificity and characters, but there is a slight allegorical mm-hmm. component to this book where this family could be said to represent a set of, say, Obama-era liberal mm-hmm. uh, of pieties or something, and, and you're watching those fall apart and piece themselves back together as well. Yeah. I, so the the reason I was so excited to talk to you is like this is this is the exact type of book that I find myself drawn to. Like the these stories that are I always I always say I like kind of small stories with big emotions. Mm. What I mean by that is you know like small stories in the sense that it's not on a world scale, it's on a family scale, and but the emotions are what kind of really sink your teeth. And it's why um, one of my favorite authors is Wendell Berry, who very mm-hmm. much different type of families, but he writes very about pastoral families all the time. And to me, I, I love these stories that are a place for us. There's another one by um, Fatima Farin Mirza that mm-hmm. came out a few years ago at this point. But mm-hmm. like, they, they're, I'm always struck by, and, and you do this so well in your book too, like these relationships that are interwoven from character to character and then like both from an individual standpoint and then as a, at a family standpoint. And something I struggle with as a, as, a, as a writer myself is separating my own experiences in when I'm writing a very emotional thing. I don't mm-hmm. want to have it be my own personal experiences, but I almost can't prevent myself from doing that. So when you're writing about a family, how are, are you able to sort of like disassociate your own family experiences into writing something else? Or do you find yourself baking those into them? Yeah, they're definitely baked in. I got a question the other night at a reading and the guy asked, he was basically like, how do you, similarly to your questions for like, how do you weave in personal experience? And in his mind, he was setting it up as this dynamic of you start with raw experience and raw material. And then over the course of writing and editing, you fictionalize. Mm -hmm. And what I sort of realized as I was answering this question was, I almost have this opposite approach where I'm setting up a fictional framework. I'm saying, um, you know, asking what if questions. What if a, a doctor committed fraud at his at his office? You know, not something anyone I know has done. What if a, a middle-aged woman suddenly re- discovered a new aspect of her sexuality and 
wanted to open her marriage to explore that, which is not my family. It didn't happen to my family. Yeah. It's all fictional framework. Mm-hmm. But as I get into the, the writing of it, you start reaching for things that are close at hand mm-hmm. and that you can fill in. And those all become these very personal things. So I find it to be almost like I've, I've built a, or you dig a big hole for yourself and then you fill it in with the personal. So for me, I'm not really starting with truth and turning it into fiction as much as I'm starting with fiction and, and filling that emotional or experiential truth in as I go. What's been interesting now, I'm working on something that's a little bit more like similar type of book, but more historically inclined, uh-huh. which I've never done before. And what's fun is instead of reaching exclusively for like person, like I had this experience or this happened to my mom or I felt this way and let me place that in this uh, fictional framework. A lot of those things I'm reaching for are anecdotes from history or academic books or, you know, and it's been interesting to sort of not be able to say I was around in 1911 and this happened to me, but to say, but I read about a guy and this happened to him in 1911, and it's sort of similar to a thing that happened to me, at least emotionally. And if I wed those two together, that can inform this guy's character, you know? Yeah. So along, kind of along those lines, I want to ask about like planning versus pantsing. And I always think about this. I Back in on the podcast I used to co-host, that this just happened to be this one week where we had two in-person events with Lee Child and then Harlan Coben, like back to back. It was great. It was delightful. But their approach to writing books that are, some might say, somewhat similar are so different. Harlan Coben says he does the exact same thing you were saying. He starts with a what-if question and then asks another what-if question and goes. Mm -hmm. And he quite literally, he writes in real time while he's doing that. Whereas Mm -hmm. Lee Child told me, he's like, I'll spend, you know, if if it's an eight-hour workday, I'll spend two hours writing, four hours reading, and two hours thinking about what I need to, how to get to Mm -hmm. the point. So, so for you, when you're when you're writing these things, how much do you know, like you said, when you're kind of starting with a what-if question, but also overlaying some personal experience, knowing those things, how much are you planning out before you actually start writing? Are you just doing like kind of big tent poles or are you fairly certain what, how you're going to get from A to B to C? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think the reason everyone's answer is a little different is because so much of writing is sort of like tricking your brain into writing, like outwitting those things that sort of block you. And for some people, it's like, I need a plan. For some people, it's like, I can't have a plan. But it's all we're just kind of doing these little tricks to make us able to be in a headspace where we can write. And so for me, I have a little bit of this hybrid approach that's like, frankly, a bit absurd, but I found, I guess, that it works, which is, I will create a very detailed outline at the Mm -hmm. start and then very quickly it goes off the rails (laughs) and I will adjust the outline as I go, but like retroactively. Mm -hmm. So it almost feels like I'm basically going in with a couple key ideas for this book. It was like family, medical fraud, Brookline, Massachusetts, four narrators, you know, like I had some big stuff, but I also had a pretty detailed outline, which I'm sure if I looked at now, I'd say most of this isn't in the book. Yeah. It's almost like I can't face the idea of bushwhacking my way through a jungle and not knowing where I'm going. So I have this like treasure map with me, but the map isn't correct. Mm-hmm. I still need to have it on my person so I don't, to, to prevent me from realizing that I don't have one. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
So it's a lot, it's kind of this weird mental crutch where I'm like, as I need to think I know where I'm going in order to go. And I need to be flexible enough to, to release that mm-hmm. uh, when it happens. And that actually was a big challenge for me early in was being like, I have this figured out and it's not, you know, it's not working. It's not going according to plan. And that's when all the good stuff happens, you know, but at, at the same time, I can't go in blind because I'd, I'd freak out. So it's a weird balancing act, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know why I even retroactively changed the out. It's almost like I'm, you know, erasing the treasure map to like put the route that I actually got there yeah. for some future purpose that's never going to be. But uh, <laughs> I need an outline open at all times. And I also need to absolutely not follow it if that's not what feels good. Yeah. Uh, you've been super gracious with your time. I know you're very, very busy. I have two last questions for you and they're both very, very lighthearted. One, since we were talking about comedy before, what is like the best piece of comedy you have enjoyed lately? It could be a show, movie, it could be stand-up. What's something that um, that you've enjoyed recently? I've been a big fan of John Early for a long time. He's a stand-up comedian. He does a lot of stuff with Kate Berlant, but he's one of these people who I think in the comedy world, everyone like adores him and, and probably rips him off too, but he hasn't had that giant, giant like mainstream break that he deserves. His HBO special came out and I can't, I'm blanking on the title, but his name's John Early and it is absolutely just gut-bustingly funny. He does this whole incredible, if you like language and I'm sure your listeners do, does an incredible bit on millennial language and millennial lingo. He's in his late thirties and he has this great joke about like, how all, all our sort of lingo is very like squishy and kind of half joking. And he has this, he's like, what are we going to, we're all going to be buried in a cemetery where the headstones say like, you know, here lies John, like because cancer, you know, <laughs> like in this, and he just really gets into the way we talk. And it's so funny. So just everyone should go out and watch John Early's HBO special and chase down everything else he's ever done too. That's amazing. I'll also throw in, I don't know if you've seen it, but the newest Hannah Gadsby special, which is called Something mm-hmm. Special. Yeah, her newest one, I think it's on Netflix, it's called Something Special. Okay. So not everything she does is amazing. And then last question, just one recommendation from you. I know you just obviously gave one, but how about a book recommendation, something that you've loved recently that people should check out? Yeah, great question. I would recommend, I got really into the writer Dan Sean recently and his book Ill Will he got me going on this obsession and I started reading like everything he's ever written. But Ill Will is a genuinely terrifying and genuinely literary work of art. I'm someone who loves horror movies and I'm constantly looking for books that I can read or listen to that will scare me. And it's really, really hard without the benefit of, you know, music and a dark theater and stuff to really scare a reader. And Ill Will by Dan Sean, whether you read it or listen to it, is so chilling, but so smart and beautiful for other reasons. I would recommend it to anyone who doesn't mind a couple of weeks of nightmares after mm-hmm. checking out. I'll, and I'll say, I know a lot of people know this one. Uh, the Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones did that to mm-hmm. you, like, like oh, yeah. creeping me while reading it. Andrew, you've been so gracious with your time. Hope is amazing. People are absolutely going to adore it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell.
Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard note.